Welcome to the Park Lane Plowden Family Law Podcast. In these podcasts, we're going to explore topical issues in all areas of family law. The aim is to have a source to refer back to if any of these topical issues come up in our listeners' cases. And whilst these podcasts will run alongside our seminar programme, which hopefully many of our listeners do attend, these discussions are aimed to be a little more lighthearted and, of course, can be accessed at more convenient times. I am all too often having to try and attend a remote seminar whilst either bribing my toddler to remain still or catch the peas that he's throwing all around the kitchen because I'm not paying him any attention. I am your host, Maxine Best. I'm a barrister at Park Lane Plowden Chambers, specialising in public and private children work. I am joined today by guests Sarah Anning and Nikesha Mickle. Sarah, first, if you could just introduce yourself, please. Hi, my name's Sarah Anning. I'm the senior member of the family team at Partland Plan Chambers. I was head of the family team until I handed that over to Julia Nelson earlier this year. I sit as a family recorder and I sit in the mental health tribunal. Nikesha, please, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, Nikesha Mickle and I am a barrister at Partland Plan Chambers specialising in public and private children law work. Today, as we sit here, it's December, although I imagine our listeners, um, it'll be the new year by the time you hear this, but we've decided to do a roundup of significant legal decisions in 2023 in the children law arena, and also plan to discuss what we think we can all expect from 2024. I want to turn to you first, Nikesha. Is there any particular case law decisions from 2023 that stand out for you? Yeah, so I've had a look at a few cases that have stood out over this year and I've approached it chronologically. So the first one was decided as long ago now as January in this year. We, we S and Reader We, which everyone will be familiar with because it changed the landscape in which we view the use of Section 20 orders under the Children Act 1989. Everybody now will have come across this case undoubtedly in their practice, but it's worth reflecting on the fact that what the case has summarised, what the case has left us with is the principle that there is no statutory time limit for how long a child can be accommodated under Section 20. Whether Section 20 is an appropriate mechanism to be used depends on the circumstances of the case and by analysing the statutory provisions of Section 20 in relation to the case itself. That case, of course, needs to still be read together with Williams and Hackney. But th- those two cases now between them uh, give us the give us a really good overview and foundations for the applicability of Section 20. OK, so I think what will be helpful for our listeners as well is if they refer to the bio that's accompanying this podcast, which will have links to these cases included in them. But thank you, Nikesh, that was a really helpful overview. Sarah, I know when we were discussing before we started this podcast, there's one case in particular around procedural fairness that you wanted to talk about. It's called Repay. 2023 case from February. In this case, it's uh, quite simply about whether or not the court should have adjourned at first instance where the mother lost her legal team. We've all been there. Either you're the one that's professionally embarrassed or somebody else is. And as a result, the case looks like it's going to, uh, a wheel is going to fall off and not be able to go ahead. In this case, the court of first instance proceeded where the mother who had learning disabilities had lost her legal team with a final hearing where a placement order was made. We might all have thought that that would have led to a successful appeal, but no, it didn't. 
the appeal was not successful, but as I said, it sets out this case helpfully, 12 propositions of uh, when a case should or should not be adjourned. I'm not going to read them all out, but I think I can summarise them in this way. First of all, for a case to be fair, it's not just got to be fair for one party, it's got to be fair for all, that each case is fact-sensitive, that at each stage this is a case management decision and therefore, of course, the discretion is wide. The principle of equality of arms under Article 6 and the overriding objective don't require everyone to be legally represented because a court should be able to assist a party, no matter their learning disability, to be able to engage. But in essence, this is a case where if you find yourself involved in proceedings where it looks like there's going to be an application to adjourn or indeed you're making an application, it's your go-to case because you want to look at those 12 points and find out where you fall within those. Out of interest, Sarah, did that case have anything in it about participation measures and how that particular... It, it doesn't centre on that. It centres on that adjournment issue. But of course, what it um, addresses in terms of participation is that the court has a wide ability to help any litigant in person or any part of the proceedings to ensure that they're engaging fairly. And uh, the court should be expected to be able to accommodate any need within reason. I suppose that makes sense, doesn't it? And it's nice to know there wouldn't be the automatic adjournment or the tummy drop moment that we've all had where someone's legal team gets sacked and you don't know what's going to happen with the rest of the case. I know the next decision we wanted to have a look at is more recent. It's on a rather dry topic and I'm going to give you the pleasure of this one, Acacia, but it was around habitual residence. Yeah, so two decisions, June and October, two two different cases determined by the Court of Appeal. You say dry, but... Obviously, the court's jurisdiction is the, is, isn't, isn't premised in statute and is based on habitual residence. So it's dry but relevant to every single case. And wherever there is an international aspect to a case is relevant. So in order to try and remove some of the dryness, what I'll <laughs> do is just give the facts because actually they are two very interesting cases. The first one was decided in June 2023, and that was RIA. In summary, the child born in 2021, parents and child went to Zambia in March 2022. No question that at that point, all three had been and remained habitually resident in this jurisdiction. The trip was intended to be a short trip, but at the end of the trip, the mother and child stayed in Zambia. The father withdrew consent a couple of months later by text. And the issue to be determined ultimately by the Court of Appeal was the test for habitual residence and the relevant date. The second case, London Borough of Hackney, the judgment came out only in October and a child was born in France, moved to Tunisia, then came to this jurisdiction. And the question to be determined ultimately was the date for habitual residence. So what have the two cases told us? Well, they've, they've given us unequivocal answers to those questions. The test to determine habitual residence is an issue of fact which requires consideration of all relevant factors. So it's not, for example, just looking at whether the child has somehow integrated into this jurisdiction. And in terms of the date, that was decided in the October judgment of Londonborough and Hackney. And the date is the date on which proceedings were commenced. So that's now provided a very clear way to work through these cases where there is an international aspect and where there may be confusion as to, well, will the child become habitually resident throughout proceedings? There were lots of key takeaway points from the two cases. And 
a bullet point list is that it's absolutely crucial to identify where jurisdiction may be an issue at the outset. So any real international flags, it needs thinking about, it needs um, dealing with, even if it's then clear that, that the court here does have jurisdiction based on habitual residence. The, the judgments actually set out in the conclusions very clearly how those uh, answers were arrived at and provide really helpful guidance, including recitals that should be included in these cases. And so all I can do really is to encourage anyone who comes across this at a relevant time and thinks, well, I've heard about that. You know, I recall listening to this podcast, now it's relevant to have a look because they've been really helpful, certainly for cases I've been in this year. And it sounds then like we've now got Court of Appeal authority that finalises when the date of habitual residence is. There isn't going to be lengthy skeleton arguments in future about trying to argue one way or the other. That is a clear decision. There's much less ambiguity now as to whether, for example, you know, because a local authority has taken five, six, seven, eight months, maybe longer to issue proceedings, what parties taking positions based on what the facts were at the time that, that they assert is relevant. So it should be fairly clear cut now. Well, that sounds like less litigation than having had to recently draft a skeleton argument on this issue before this decision came out. I, for one, am relieved to hear that we now have a settled legal position. Sarah, I know that another particular case that struck you this year was in the context of finding of fact hearings, particularly where there are allegations of sexual harm between adults rather than children. Yes, I mean, this has been going on now for a few years um, as a hot topic whether or not the family court should import into its um, decision-making understandings and criminal terms in relation to rape and sexual assault. In March of this year, the Court of Appeal considered a judgment of Noel's J from 2022. I have no doubt at all that Noel's J, who is a particularly forceful advocate of women's rights and well-known to be heavily involved in these uh, aspects of cases will have been pleased to know that the Court of Appeal looked at her judgment when she handed it down at first instance and thought it looked good and then when it was a subject of an appeal they commended it very highly. The judgment sets out that it's inappropriate for the family court to try to develop its own bespoke definitions of rape or sexual assault and consent the court should not be adopting the criminal definitions. What's needed, and I think we're all relatively familiar with this now, is for the court to engage with actually what has been happening between this couple that have separated, what's happened, and to produce a narrative judgment in which findings are made. The Court of Appeal judgment is um, helpful in lots of different ways. I commend it to you. It highlights, for example that where there is um, one party wishing to rely on evidence about the other party's sexual history, how and when notice should be given in respect of uh, such a case that's being run. That that decision by the Court of Appeal came, as I said, in um, earlier in the, this year, in March. And then in April of this year, there was an appeal from a district judge to the High Court, private law appeal, and that was heard by Noel's J. It was a local appeal. There was various grounds of appeal, but the one that I think falls most within this ambit of what I'm talking about is the issue of consent and whether or not the judge at first instance had failed to deal with the issue of consent where there was allegations of uh, sexual assault between 
previous partners. And uh, the court and Noel's J in hearing the appeal made it very clear that the court does not need to deal on with each and ever, every particular allegation with the issue of consent. The court can take a, a, a wider view of this matter. And she went on to make it clear that where the behaviour falls short of establishing rape, it may nevertheless be profoundly abusive, that, that coming from the um, earlier case of H&N. Our own Pool J has gone on to hear another case um, on this particular issue as well, where he, on hearing an appeal from a first instance decision, was keen to make clear that there's got to be um, care taken not to proceed on assumptions. All members of the judiciary have had bespoke training in relation to domestic abuse, and in particular to those myths that creep into advocacy that... Um, court hears. You may or may not be aware that there's guidance within the criminal courts about uh, particularly rape myths. And uh, in this case, the judge at first instance had come to a conclusion that it was very unlikely, inherently improbable, that the mother would have continually silently submitted to such sexual assaults over a number of years. And Poole made clear that was not a permissible basis upon which the court should find against the mother in her allegations of abuse. So th those cases taken together, I think, show us the pace with which the both the first instance and the higher courts have been trying to move to catch up with the way that society has moved on, our understanding of what does happen within relationships in terms of sexual assaults and how wrong courts have got it in the past. And it's been interesting, I think, to see as time goes on whether there's any bounce back in the other direction. But certainly at the moment, I think that the courts are rightly very cautious in hearing these cases to ensure that fair, a fair hearing is given to women and men who are making these allegations and a, and a proper understanding is brought to it that there is not one way that a victim may or may not behave. Well, that's a relief, I think, to hear, especially mm. with sadly how frequently these issues come up in our cases. Even from the four cases that we've just briefly touched on, it seems that 2023 has been a year of decisions in cases that are going to be relevant to many of the cases we have in 2024 as well. The final case that we wanted to look at before we move on is one that many are talking about and it, it's definitely fed its way into practice already and that is the placement of children at home under a care order. And Nikesha, I think you wanted to have a look at this one. Re-JW, August 2023, the Court of Appeal has provided a decision on what type of order, if any, should be made with children who either remain or are placed at home in the long term. The takeaway point is that care order should only be made in situations where children are to remain or return home in exceptional circumstances. So all I will say is obviously important for everybody, but particularly when you're for a respondent, if you can put forward an argument that a lesser order or even no order would offer the same support, then this this case obviously is really powerful and we've, we've started seeing it come through really quickly already in many cases that we're instructed and involved in. Is that something that you've seen, Sarah, from in your sitting? Yes. Strangely, I found myself on the Monday after this case had come out sitting in Hull, where the care plan was for a care order at home. 
I made sure the advocates obviously had read the case, which they had. And, and my approach was, and I think this is in line with the authority, is not that I wouldn't make a care order at home, but that it would need to be addressed in evidence and or in submissions why this was one of those cases where it was needed. And I thought that required the advocates that for the local authorities to go through each of the bit, each of the bits in the care plan explaining to the court why that those parts of the care plan needed a care order. Interestingly, once I'd pointed that out, they decided they didn't need a care order. <laughs> well, I've certainly seen the more scrutiny about the necessity for a care order. And this brings us neatly onto what I've innovatively termed in my notes as the what's hot and what's not segment of this podcast because I've certainly seen that case not only force everyone's hand to look more clearly at why a care order is needed but also to look at more clearly whether a supervision order is needed and this my experience certainly in 2023 has been a greater focus on supervision orders the necessity for them at an interim stage as well as a final order stage and what more they bring in comparison to a robust child protection plan. And it just a matter of weeks ago, I had a case where three parties were arguing for three completely different orders. One of us was saying care order, one was saying supervision order, and the other was saying you don't need any order at all. This is can be managed under a child protection plan. Is that something that you've seen, Nikesha, more recently? I've definitely found that there is more scrutiny when you're looking at a care order at home. I've got to say, in my opinion, though, I must say in this area, I've tended to find actually that, that that was always the case. There was always a lot of scrutiny in my experience if if there was a case for a care order at home. But I think it's become the centre of focus in the last few months in my experience. When I wanted to set up this segment for the podcast, I've spoken with a number of other barristers, a number of local solicitors, and also met some members of the judiciary to look at the trends that have been seen in 2023 and certainly from the judicial perspective I'm told that there is much more of an emphasis on the necessity for supervision orders whether they've even got as much teeth as a robust child protection plan and certainly focus on the changing of the landscape following the public law working group report on supervision orders so especially since the president has endorsed the findings of that working group so it's something that when we're looking at what's happened in 2023, but also looking forward to 2024, it's likely to be high up on the judicial agenda. So worth preparing yourself for if you're attending court to try and argue one way or the other. I think that point dovetails quite interestingly with the other hot topic that we've certainly had over the last 12 to 18 months about the proportionality and necessity to litigate facts. I've had recent experience where the local authority want a supervision order and are therefore saying that certain facts need to be litigated in order to prove threshold, where I was arguing there was no need for a supervision order and therefore no need to litigate the facts that went to threshold. So the two were utterly enmeshed and the judge had to try and unpick that. So I think that given that there is an emphasis on not using up court time unnecessarily, there's a whole area of litigation that will be interesting to pursue if the courts are open to considering less use of supervision orders, then why are we even litigating certain facts? Because we don't need a threshold at all then, do we? No, I agree entirely. And, and certainly my experience in speaking to others has been threshold has very much got the spotlight on it at the moment. We're reaching issues, resolutions, hearings problematically without a settled final threshold. 
but there isn't just a demand or request from the judiciary for a document. The local authority are being required to set out why the particular aspects of threshold that appear to be an issue are necessary to litigate when the final care plan is settled, often in some of the recent cases I've done. The court's being asked to give up valuable judicial resources to litigate aspects of threshold that have very little, if any, impact upon the overall care plan. Something we were discussing between us before we um, came on the mic is what's the solution to some of these threshold issues. And one of the things that we've come up with, which ties in quite nicely with another update from 2023, being the standard orders update that we've all had circulated. And we think, we discussed it in Acacia, didn't we? We think quite well implemented so far. Yeah, but I think, Maxine, you raised a really good point, which is that perhaps lacking from that, coming back onto the threshold, is actually addressing the necessity for directions to be set out for a final threshold, responses to threshold, and a composite agreed threshold. Yes, because when we've reviewed the standard orders update as part of this preparation for this podcast, it's missing. There doesn't appear to be the common direction for final threshold responses so that we, the court can be in a position by the issues resolution hearing to deal with what the threshold is, what the issues are. And as Sarah says, how that has any impact upon the overall welfare decision the court's making. So something for practitioners, I guess, to be aware of in 2024 to make sure that it's incorporated within I think so. I think that um, the revised standard orders have been really well embraced and acted upon. And I think it's just have it's 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 getting to a point where it's second nature to make sure that if you're drafting or you're reviewing the order, you've checked that either that's been timetabled through right through to a a, a, um, a composite threshold or that it's factored in. So that you get to your issues resolutions hearing and everybody's clear on what the threshold findings sort are, what the responses are of all respondents. So not not just saying that's not for me to respond to, but setting out why it's not for you to respond to. And that then obviously leads on to very clear parameters for required witnesses. And so leading to a, an effective IRH and allowing a timetable to be set down properly with a witness template. And whilst we're referring to these standard orders update, we're not going to set out on this podcast what all of those differences are. But our Lucy Souden from Chambers has set out in an article on the website, so it's worth a look, just to get a clear idea of what the changes are in those orders and what's expected to be incorporated within them. As always, one aspect of the feedback I got from the judiciary in particular is that threshold must be evidence-based. Is that the most frustrating thing, Sarah, to experience when you're sitting? I think it is frustrating. A threshold, a good threshold, needs to make it really clear what it is said the parents, as it usually is, has to, have done wrong or what they're at risk of doing that meets the threshold. And the lack of forensic analysis as early as possible as to what that is and ensuring that you've distilled it into the short document that the threshold requires can mean that sitting, it takes you far too long to try and unpick it to understand it. But also as an advocate, picking up a bundle and trying to understand actually what it is that the local authority alleging is really unhelpful. There needs to be a greater focus on clear drafting, reference to the bundle, and just say it exactly as it is, not as how the doctor said it, 
or how the psychologist said it, but actually what it is that you're saying are the risks or the, the harm that has happened. And it's, it's not new, is it? It's yeah. just unfortunate. I think probably practitioner timing, having having the ability to sit down and go through the thousand page bundle to try and figure out exactly what the evidence is. But the time spent doing that saves everybody time in the long run and, and court time as well. And I think using plain English as well, I, I get quite frustrated when I get a threshold in any capacity that's drafted in lawyer speak or medical speak. I think it's important to try and do it in plain English. Yeah. Clear facts. Yeah. When you mention as well a short document, you know, there's no need is there to fire 10 allegations at particular parents where three will do. And even recently I had a, a case where the threshold was nearly three pages long. But one look at the body cam footage demonstrating the state of the home conditions was enough to prove threshold with one piece of evidence. And it really needed more of a proportionate approach, in particular in that case when the welfare outcome was agreed and threshold was the stumbling block. And that comes full circle to what we were discussing right at the beginning of what we've seen a lot of in 2023 and what we hope will change in 2024. When we then look at what we can expect from 2024, this again was the topic of discussion amongst other barrister colleagues, solicitor colleagues and members of the judiciary. And the prediction is that we will see an increased focus on the president's three hearing approach. Is that something, Sarah, that is you're hearing from higher up? Well, I don't think I, I, I'm not saying I'm hearing anything from higher up, but I think on circuit, what I'm seeing is that um, all the DFJs are applying pressure to those sitting and those appearing in the family court to keep to the three hearings. And I and I don't think that's going away. I think that's going to become stronger in 2024. It's something we all have to, to bear in mind, it seems, from the discussions that I've been having. It also brings into focus the PLO process and the necessity for as much work to be done during that process as possible and... I suppose for our solicitor clients and friends, they will feel on their client's behalf the pressure to make sure as much is done as possible within that PLO process because the courts aren't going to be as willing to order a further assessment in court proceedings, a further psychological assessment. It's becoming more common than I've ever seen in 10 years of practice to reach a first initial hearing and be told there aren't going to be any further assessments completed within the court process and the case is listed for final hearing within and completed within a 15-week period. I don't know if that's something that you've come across, Nikesha. No, I can't say 15 weeks, but certainly <laughs> certainly many more cases within the 26 weeks, yeah. And what I've noticed is you need to, if you're asking for an additional case management hearing or further case management hearing, you need to justify it. It's not. It's not. It's not as easy now to say. Well, you know, can we have a further case management in two weeks to review this? No, there needs to be really good reason for that to happen. Other elements of what we can expect to see in twenty twenty four. I think there's been a bit of it in twenty twenty three. Sarah, we were discussing it earlier. The need to really justify calling an expert for cross examination. Do you think that pattern's going to continue? Absolutely. I think two thousand twenty four is going to see an increase in the trend for pressure on all advocates to show good, thought-out, coherent reasons for any expert to come to give evidence. We are going to be required to put all questions in writing first and thereafter 
it's going to be incredibly difficult to prove why an expert is required to give evidence. There are some helpful cases which we can tag on to this podcast on being able to make that argument, but it's going to get increasingly difficult. It's bound to, it just costs too much money and takes too much time. And I think from a parent perspective, it can be quite difficult to know how to run a case without challenging the expert but is the answer more robust advice or or a clear setting out in a position statement of we don't accept this evidence but we don't have any more questions to ask and invite the court to consider the rest of the evidence holistically I don't know well I'd say if you're if you if you're a parent and you don't accept the expert evidence say that in your position statement and say that you want to cross-examine the expert and if your judge says no then you can still make the submission, can't you, that you don't accept the medical evidence and, you know, that you may have wanted to challenge it. Yeah. But if the court isn't going to allow you to do that, then the court isn't going to allow you to do that. And that's a decision that's out of your hands then. Um, And then we can't look at 2024 without mentioning the On The Horizon report from the Civil Legal Aid Review. We'll just have to see from a family perspective as to what that's going to mean for all of us. Moving forward, we'll just have to watch this space. Thanks both. I think those discussions, it was a real run through of 2023. For more information and links to the cases we've referred to in this podcast, please visit our website at www.parklaneplowden.co.uk. And the website is also where we will be advertising the next podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>